Chapter Five of the Four Faces by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Five. Hugeson Gastrell at home. A week had passed since Dulcie had promised to become my wife, and since the amazing robbery in broad daylight at Holt Manor. I had been five days back in town where I had some estate business to attend to. It was the evening of Hugeson Gastrell's housewarming reception in his newly furnished mansion in Cumberland Place, and the muster of well-known people was extraordinary. Peers and peeresses, prosperous city financiers, celebrities of the drama and of the operatic stage, luminaries of the law, diplomats, and rich retired traders who had shed the tradesmen and blossomed into gentlemen, jostled one another in the rooms and on the stairs. It is surprising how people will rush to the house of a wealthy man. At least one duke was present, a cabinet minister too, also a distinguished judge, and two archbishops, for I noticed them as I fought my way up into the room where music was being performed, music the quality of which the majority of the listeners gauged by the fees known to be paid to the artist engaged and by the amount of newspaper publicity those artists' press agents had succeeded in securing for them. Nor were journalists lacking at this interesting social function, as some of them afterwards termed it in their papers. In London I move a great deal in many kinds of society, and now I noticed mingling in the crowd several men and women I was in the habit of meeting frequently, though I did not know them to speak to, press representatives whose exclusive duty I knew it to be to attend social gatherings of this description. As I edged my way through the dense throng I could hear my favorite composition, Dvorak's Humoresque being played on the violin by Beatrice Langley, who I had been told was to appear, and for a few minutes the crowd was hushed. To my chagrin the music ended almost as I succeeded in forcing my way into the room, so that I was in time only for the applause. Now the hall and the large rooms where the guests were were filled with the buzz of conversation. In two of these rooms supper was in progress, a supper in keeping with the sumptuousness, the luxury, and the general extravagance noticeable everywhere. For this house in Cumberland Place, which he had rented from Lord Easterton, lent itself admirably to Hugus and Gastrell's distorted ideas as to plenishing, at which some people laughed, calling them almost oriental in their splendor and their lavishness. Upon entering the idea conveyed was that here was a man who had suddenly found himself possessed of a great deal more money than he had ever expected to come by, and who, not being accustomed to wide means, had at once set to work to fling his fortune broadcast, purchasing wherever he went everything costly that took his fancy. For after mounting some steps and entering under a wide portico, one found himself in a spacious, lofty vestibule where two flights of warmly tinted marble steps, shallow and heavily carpeted, ran up to right and left to a wide gallery on three sides of the hall. The marble was so beautiful, the steps were so impressive to look upon, that one was forcibly reminded of the staircase in the opera house in Paris, of course in miniature. On the lowest step on either side were carved marble pillars supporting nude figures of great size, 
and bearing each an electric lamp gold-shaded to set off the yellow-tinted marble and the turkey carpets of gold and of richest blue. In one corner stood a Mongolian monster, a green and gold dragon of porcelain resting on a valuable faience pedestal, a bit of ancient Cathay set down in the heart of London. In their magnificence the reception rooms excelled even this hall, boasting as they did a heterogeneous collection of rare antiques, of valuable relics, and of articles de vertu from practically the world over. Everywhere they lay in strange confusion. On the mantelpieces, tops of cupboards, on shelves, angle brackets, and on almost every table. Here was a delicate lute of jade used by Chinese lovers of a thousand years ago. There stood silver lamps, carved most marvelously and once trimmed by vestal virgins, lamps from the temples of Herculaneum, of Rome, and of Pompeii. Shadowy gods and goddesses, dragons, fetishes of more or less hideous mien, glared everywhere at one another in a manner most unpleasant. Porcelains, wonderful blue-patterned plates from Pekin, willow-patterned dishes from Japan, ancient hammered beer tankards from Bavaria and the Rhine, long-stemmed Venetian glasses of iridescent hues were scattered everywhere in bewildering profusion. In an anteroom was a priceless crucifix in three different woods from Oberammergau. On the mantelpieces of three of the reception rooms were old French gilt clocks, the kind found nowadays only in secluded and old inns of the Bohemian Quartier Latin, inns which the tourist never sees, and where collectors are to all intents unknown. Set upon this landing of polished oak upon the first floor was a very ancient sundial, taken from some French chateau, a truly beautiful objet d'art in azure and faded gold, with foliated crest above, borne long ago, no doubt, by some highly pompous dignitary. Here and there, too, were suits of armor of beaten steel, glittering figures rigid and erect, and marvelously inlaid with several different metals. Two rooms of the building, I was told by a guest with whom I had entered into conversation, were set aside entirely as an armory. Hardly had I finished observing all this, and a great deal more besides, when a voice at my elbow exclaimed, "'Good evening, Mr. Barrington. I wonder, now, if you'll remember me, eh?' As I turned, I instantly recognized the speaker. "'Of course I recollect you, Mrs. Stapleton,' I exclaimed, looking into her eyes with, I am afraid, rather unconcealed admiration, for I don't pretend that I am not of a very susceptible nature. I have met many people I know this evening,' I continued, "'but this is an unlooked-for pleasure. I was told in Berkshire that you never came to town.' "'Were you really?' she exclaimed with a ripple of merry laughter. They seem down there to know more about one's movements than one knows oneself. For an instant she paused. "'And how is your lovely and delightful friend, Dulcie Challoner?' she inquired presently. "'Is she here to-night?' "'No,' I said, wondering for the moment if she knew or suspected my secret, for our engagement had not yet been announced. The Challoners don't know our host, though, judging by the people here to-night, he seems to know nearly everybody. "'Do you know him well? Have you known him long?' she inquired carelessly, letting her gaze rest on mine. I told her that our acquaintanceship was very slight, 
that I had made his acquaintance in Geneva, and met him once afterwards in London. "'I don't know him well either,' she observed, then added with some emphasis. "'He strikes me as being a most charming young man.' Naturally I agreed with her, though I had been unable to make up my mind whether, upon the whole, I liked him or not. I thought that upon the whole I didn't, seeing what strange things had happened. "'By the by,' I said suddenly, "'have you had supper?' She answered that she had not, and that she was starving. Several people were emerging from one of the supper-rooms, and thus it came that I presently found myself seated, tete-a-tete, -tete, with the beautiful widow, and at last beginning to enjoy an evening which until now I had found rather dull. It was natural that we should presently speak of Berkshire and of Holt Manor, and soon we were discussing at length the subject of the robbery. "'And have the police as yet no clues?' Mrs. Stapleton suddenly asked. "'None, apparently. I suppose you have heard all about what happened, and the statements made by Sir Roland's little son, Dick Challoner?' "'I know nothing beyond what I read in the newspapers,' she replied. "'The papers mentioned that Sir Roland's boy had been chloroformed by the thieve or thieves. That was all so far as I remember.' "'Yes,' I answered. "'He was chloroformed, but he need not have been according to his own account. And as he is extremely truthful and never boasts, I think we may believe his story. He had his head and shoulders in a big oak chest in his father's bedroom, where his father had sent him to find a hunting apron to lend to somebody, and when he stood upright again he heard two men talking upon the opposite side of the screen which hid the oak chest. The voices were those of strangers, and the boy naturally supposed that the speakers were some friends of Sir Roland's. He was about to show himself when he heard one of the men say, "'She says this drawer has money in it. Give me your key.' He heard a key being pushed into a drawer lock, the drawer pulled out, the chink of coin and the crackle of banknotes. Then he heard the other man suddenly say, "'Hurry up. They'll have got the plate by this time and be waiting for us.' The boy was awfully frightened, of course, but didn't lose his head. Knowing that his presence must be discovered in a moment, he sprang out from behind the screen, intending to dash past the men and downstairs and give the alarm. Unfortunately he rushed right up against one of them, who instantly gripped him and clapped his hand over his mouth, while the other man pressed his hand over his eyes, presumably to prevent Dick's being afterwards able to identify them. Dick says that one of the men twisted his arm until he couldn't stir without extreme pain, then told him that he must show them where the key of Sir Roland's safe was, a little safe in the wall in his bedroom. Dick knew where the key was. Sir Roland keeps it, it seems, in a drawer of his dressing-table, but he refused to tell, though the man screwed his arm until he nearly broke it. He strained it badly, and the poor little chap has it still in a sling. Then, finding that they could do nothing with him, and that nothing would make him peach, as he says, though he says they threatened to hit him on the head, one of them pressed something over his mouth and nose, which seemed to suffocate him. What happened after that he doesn't know, as he lost consciousness. "'What a brave little boy!' my beautiful companion exclaimed in a tone of admiration. "'Did he say at all what the men were like?' He didn't even catch a glimpse of their faces, they pounced on him so quickly. But he says that both wore hunting kit, and he thinks both were tall, one wore pink. It was a carefully planned affair, anyway. 
Mrs. Stapleton said thoughtfully, as I refilled her glass with Paul Roger. What was the actual value of the thing stolen? Sir Roland puts it at twelve or fourteen thousand pounds, roughly. You see, he had a lot of jewelry that had belonged to Lady Challoner, and that would have been Miss Challoner's. Most of that was stolen. It should have been in the safe, of course, but Sir Roland had taken it out the week before, intending to send it all to London to be thoroughly overhauled and cleaned. He was going to give it to Dulcie, to Miss Challoner on her twenty-first birthday. She comes of age next month, you know. It was in one of the drawers that the thieves unlocked, and they took most of it. They would have taken the lot, only some of it was in a back portion of the drawer, and they apparently overlooked it. But how did they manage to steal the plate? I read in some paper that a lot of plate was stolen. Heaven knows, but they got it somehow. The police think that other men, disguised probably as gentlemen's servants, must have made their way into the pantry during the hunt breakfast, while Sir Roland's servants were up to their eyes and work, attending to everybody, and have slipped it into bags and taken it out to a waiting motor. Strangers could easily have gone into the back premises like that, unnoticed, in the middle of the bustle and confusion. If Dick had told the men who bullied him what they wanted to know, Sir Roland's safe would have been ransacked too, and several thousand pounds more worth of stuff stolen, most likely. He is a little brick, that boy. He is indeed. How long did he remain unconscious? Until Sir Roland himself found him just before lunch. The ruffians had pushed him under the bed, and if Sir Roland had not happened to catch sight of his foot, which protruded a little, the boy might have been left there until night, or even until next day, and the whole household had been hunting for him. Mrs. Stapleton sipped some champagne, then asked, "'Is anybody suspected?' "'That's difficult to say,' I answered. "'Naturally the police think that one or other of the servants at Holt must know something of the affair, even have been an actual accomplice, but which? None of the servants have been there less than four years, it seems, and several have been in Sir Roland's service ten and fifteen years. The old butler was born on the estate. Sir Roland scouts the idea that any of his servants had a hand in the affair, and he told the police so at once. Even the fact that one of the thieves had, according to Dick, referred to some woman, he had said, She says this drawer has money in it, wouldn't make Sir Roland suspect any of the maids. The police then asked in a roundabout way if he thought any of his guests could have had anything to say to it. Phew! How furious Sir Roland became with them! You should have seen him. I was with him at the time. Then suddenly he grew quite calm, realizing that they were, after all, only trying to do their duty and to help him trace the thieves. Up to the present I have not, so far as I am aware, he said in that cold, dignified way of his, entertain criminals at Holt Manor or elsewhere. No, my man, he ended, turning to the sergeant, or the inspector, or whatever he was, the men who have stolen my property were not any of my guests. You may set your minds at rest on that point. Conversation drifted to other topics. Several times during supper I endeavored to lead my beautiful companion on to talk about herself, but on each occasion she cleverly diverted conversation to some other subject. I confess that when she casually questioned me concerning my own affairs I was less successful in evading her inquiries, or it may have been that I, in common with most of my sex, like to talk freely about self 
and Self's affairs, especially when the listener is a beautiful woman who appears to be sympathetic and deeply interested in all one has to say about oneself. During that brief half-hour our intimacy grew apace. There are people with whom one seems to have been on terms of friendship almost as though one had known them for years within ten minutes after being introduced to them. Others who, when one has known them quite a long time, seem still to remain comparatively strangers. Mrs. Stapleton belonged to the first group, although she spoke so little about herself. Yet I was not in the least attracted by her in the way Dulcie Challoner attracted me. I found her capital company. I could imagine our becoming great friends. I could think of her in the light of a bon camarade. But that was all. As for feeling tempted to fall in love with her, but the bare thought was grotesque. "'And what a charming, delightful girl that is! I mean, Miss Challoner!' Mrs. Stapleton suddenly exclaimed when, after talking a great deal, we had been silent for a few moments. "'And how exquisitely pretty!' she added after an instant's pause. I hardly knew what to say. I know enough of women to be aware that no woman is particularly anxious, save in exceptional cases, to listen to a panegyric on the charms and physical attractions of some other woman. Therefore, after a moment's reflection, I answered with affected indifference. I think I agree with you. I have known her a number of years. Her father was a great friend of my father's. Indeed, she replied, raising her eyebrows a little, then letting her gaze rest full on mine. That is interesting. I am a believer in platonic friendships. I wonder if you are. Oh, of course, I said quickly. It is ridiculous to suppose that a man and woman can't be friends without... without... Yes, she said encouragingly. Oh, well, I suppose, I mean, without falling in love with each other. She smiled in a way that puzzled me a little, but said nothing. "'Do you mean in all cases?' she suddenly inquired. "'In most cases, anyway.' "'And when would you make an exception?' This was a problem I felt I could not solve. However, I made a dash at it. "'In the case of people of abnormally susceptible temperament,' I said, "'I suppose such people couldn't be friends without soon becoming, well, lovers.' "'Ah, I see,' she observed thoughtfully. She was toying with the strawberry ice, and her lowered eyelids displayed the extraordinary length of their lashes. Certainly I was talking to an interesting and very lovely woman, though again here, as before in the hunting field in Berkshire, I found myself wondering in what her beauty consisted. Not a feature was regular. The freckles on nose and forehead seemed to show more plainly under the glare of the electric lights. The eyes were red-brown, but how large they were, and how they seemed to sparkle with intelligence. She looked up suddenly. Her expression was serious now. Up to the present her eyes, while she talked, had been singularly animated, often full of laughter. "'Mr. Barrington, have you ever been in love?' I was so surprised at this question, from a woman to whom I was practically a stranger, that I thought it best to treat it as a jest. "'Yes, a dozen times,' I answered. I am in love at this moment, I added lightly, as if joking. You need not have told me that, she said, serious still. I knew it the moment I saw you both together. I asked, but only to hear what you would say. 
"'But, but,' I stammered, "'I, you, that is, I don't quite catch your meaning. When did you see us both together, and who is the other person you are thinking of?' She had finished her ice. "'Please give me some more champagne,' she said. I picked up the half-empty bottle, refilled her glass, then my own. She held out her glass until it clinked against mine. "'Here is health and long life to your friend of the chestnut,' she exclaimed, smiling again, "'and to you, too. I only hope that your married life will be happier than—' She checked herself. Her tongue had run away with her, and, as our lips touched our glasses, I mentally finished her sentence. But who, I wondered, had her husband been? People were still flocking into the room. Others were moving out. From a distance there came to us above the noise and the buzz of conversation the words of a song I loved. Mon cœur s'ouvre à ta voix, comme s'ouvrent les fleurs au baiser de l'aurore. Mais, oh, mon bien-aime pour mieux sécher mes pleurs que ta voix parle encore. Dis-moi qu'à Dalila tu reviens pour jamais. Redis à ma tendresse les serments d'autrefois, les serments que j'aimais. Ah, réponds à ma tendresse, ah, verse-moi l'ivresse. How gorgeous! I exclaimed, straining my ears in a vain attempt to hear better. Who is it? Kirkby Lunn, my companion answered quickly. Are you fond? She stopped. Her face was partly turned. I saw a glance of recognition flash into her eyes and vanish instantly. Following the direction of her glance, my gaze rested upon the strange, striking woman I had seen but once, but could not possibly forget. Mrs. Gastrell had just entered, and with her to my astonishment, Jack Osborne. It was Jasmine Gastrell with whom my companion had exchanged that momentary glance of recognition. "'Are you fond of music?' Mrs. Stapleton asked, looking at me again. "'Very,' I answered absently, "'of music that is music.' For my attention had become suddenly distracted. How came this woman to be here, this woman who called herself Gastrell's wife? Lord Easterton was somewhere about, or I had seen him in the crowd. Such a striking woman would be sure to attract his attention, he would inquire who she was, he might even ask Gastrell, and then what would happen? What would Gastrell say? Was the woman actually his wife, or was she... Mechanically I conversed with my companion for a minute or two longer, then suddenly she suggested that we should go. And let some of these starving people take our table, she added, as she prepared to rise. Osborne and his singularly lovely companion were now seated at a table only a few yards off. His back was turned to us, and I had not caught Mrs. Gastrell's glance. "'Do you know who that is, that woman who has just come in?' I inquired carelessly, indicating her as I rose. "'That,' Mrs. Stapleton answered, looking full at her, and this time their eyes met in a cold stare. "'No, I have no idea.' I confess that this flat on truth, spoken with such absolute sang-froid, somewhat disconcerted me for I could not be in the least doubt that I had distinctly seen the two women greet each other with that brief glance of mutual recognition. End of chapter 5 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com